Guys, thank you so much. Um, I feel no pressure after all those compliments. <laughs> My word, you think I'd walk on water? I don't. Um, the first thing I want to just say is um, to Jason and, and Susan, thank you very, very much uh, for inviting me. Um, when when I was younger, like 18, you, you think this kind of thing is your right. <laughs> now you know it's your privilege. Because I sat in the office and I saw all the dates of the various venues that you guys, I think 2006, right? And then all the various venues. And I thought to myself, there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of love, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of mud, a lot of blood that went into, into that. And I get to stand here today. So this is not in any way, shape, or form a right. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege. You, the parents, I want to honor your family and your house. So, yeah, just wanted to say thank you very much. It's a wonderful privilege. Let's just close our eyes. Father, Jesus said that he's the vine and we are his branches, and without him we can do nothing. <clears throat> that's, an, that's an absolute truth. Literally, we can't even breathe unless you breathe into our nostrils with your loving care. So, Lord, being aware of that, um, Whatever is said here today, is, it's, it's your story, Lord. It's your gifting. It's everything that you give to us. Um, and you love us well. And I want to honor you and thank you up front, Lord, for that. And I pray that you will speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I remember in, in 2002, <clears throat> Lee and I made a trip to Australia and New Zealand. And um, we spent some time with a friend of ours in the north part of the South Island, with Andrew and Anna, and, and at that time, they're two kids, then I have five. Um, but Charlotte was about five years old, I think, and Piata was three years old. And Anna's amazing. I mean, they would plant the corn, and then would make corn soup from the corn that they planted, and she'd make the bread from scratch. And this was one of those meals where we had corn soup with, with these freshly baked buns, you know? And she took them out the oven, we're all sitting around the table, and she put the bread in front of all of us and dished up the soup. And then uh, to help three-year-old Piata, she buttered the bun. But as she buttered it, it was so fresh, it just broke open. And Piata looked at it and went, I don't want it broken. And her mom said, it's fine, you can just eat it. I don't want it broken. And she says, we'd like to say grace. <laughs> Three-year-olds, zero to 100 miles an hour in three seconds. <laughs> and her mom said, Piata, please, can you dry up the tears? We'd like to say grace. And <laughs> okay, get up. Can you go to your room, please? <laughs> Piata, can you please dry it up? Go to your room. Adults are so stupid. And she's standing in the door frame of her bedroom and she's going, <laughs> and we're sitting at the table. I we started to giggle. And she says, can you please close your door? When you're done with the tears, you can more than welcome to come back. But we would like to eat in peace. We don't want all of that around us. <laughs> Closes the door, and she, but she wasn't done on the keel. <laughs> As I thought about that story for years, it actually became a saying in our little in our household. When when we're not happy with something, we say, "I don't want it broken." And then Lee and I, we know exactly what we're talking about. And in one moment, I realized when I was going through some stuff that that's often how I pray to God. Word broken. Do you know what the problem was? Piata, that's a good story. Eh? <laughs> 
<laughs> the problem is Piata, in a little three-year-old mind, couldn't understand that the reason the bun broke was precisely because it was good. It came in a form that didn't make sense to her, and so she didn't want it. And I realize how many times do I stand in my room and I look at my life circumstances and I say, it's a broken bun. I don't understand it because I'm acting like a three-year-old. And I'm screaming at God saying, I don't want it broken. I don't want it broken. Okay, here's a theological principle that I want you to put in your pocket and remember, not only for today, but for the rest of your life. Because this little saying that I'm going to give to you now is all over the Bible. It's in every story in the Bible. It's in our stories. And it's this. It's a theologian by the name of Thomas Cranmer. He wrote the book of prayer in the 15th century. And this is what he said. I know if you have the quote, um, it doesn't matter if you don't. There it is. God's love, so the love that's willing to die for you, to give itself up for you, that love will take you on journeys you do not wish to go, make you travel by roads you do not wish to use, to take you to places you never wish to leave. Okay? It was a cold November night when I woke up in 2011 and I was having a panic attack. And the reason why I was having a panic attack is because I was having a nightmare. And in this nightmare, there were these walls of fear closing in on me and I couldn't get away from them. And it was abstract and I wasn't sure. I was just scared out of my mind. And so when I opened my eyes, I could feel pins and needles running down the side of my face, (laughs) my heart beating in my throat and in my breath. And I just lay there and I thought to myself, is this what it feels like to go insane? And I wasn't sure what was going on. So I closed my eyes. But when I closed my eyes, I was back in the same nightmare. And I wrestled like this for 45 minutes. I knew it was 10 past one because the first thing I did was I looked at my iPad shaking. And it was 1 a.m. in the morning. And you know what it's like at 1 a.m. in the morning and there's no reason to be found anywhere. Just the madness of my own mind. And I felt like every time I closed my eyes, I wanted to be like a three-year-old who just goes, okay, you guys aren't there, I can't see you. But the problem was when I did close my eyes, the same nightmare was playing itself off. And then when I opened my eyes and I'd feel this panic and, and it felt like someone was picking a fight with me and I didn't want to fight. But eventually I had to surrender to the source of whatever this panic was because when I stopped and I went, think, what's going on? I realized that there were these massive arrows of life circumstances, of broken buns that were coming at me. I'd lost all of our money in my pursuit of this dream. We were living in Los Angeles at the time. Um, the phone stopped ringing My reputation was done as an actor. People weren't calling me anymore to do stuff. Um, Like I said, I'd blown all of our money in the pursuit of this dream. We thought we would have a family. That didn't happen. Then, you know, we both got sick from all the stress. It it was just a nightmare scenario. And what do you do at three in the morning or two in the morning? I thought, okay, well, let me go and pray. But as I was walking to the other bedroom without trying to wake Lee, still hearing my, my heartbeat and my breathing, I thought to myself, God, am I going to pray for a breakthrough? Am I going to pray for money? What, what, what am I, the, the job always? I've been doing that for 20 years. Complete flip and waste of time. Why would I do that now? Because you've got to remember at this point, I'd been a Christian for about 20 years. And, I, and it wasn't like an in and out of, no, no, I'm flat out for Jesus. I've got prophetic words to back me up. I've got the whole nine. I'm passionate about doing this thing. Okay, not without mistakes, but, but there was a consistency to my walk with God. 
But when my knees hit the ground, I looked at God and I went, you screwed me. I did this, I did this, and I named all the faithful things that I'd done, and he told me to do this, and I did it, and studied a stupid degree for four years from home because he thought it was a good idea, and then I became an actor anyways. And, you know, it was economics and psychology. I didn't use it a lot, but the point is, I looked at God and I said, you got my story wrong. This is not how this is supposed to have played. And in fact, if someone had to look at my life, they would go, what a loser. There can't be a Jesus in his life. God can't be in his life because look how unblessed his life is. In other words, God, I have evidence that you're not in my life. Conveniently forgetting that I'm still breathing, which is quite a lot of evidence that God's still in your life. But that's besides the point. But I looked at him and I said, I've got no evidence that you're in my life. And I'm done. I'm over it. When I looked again, it was four o'clock in the morning. I had a lot to say. I was angry and I was mad. You want to pick a fight? Let's go. I kept quiet. I said, do you want to say anything? Nothing. Okay, go back to bed. So I picked up my iPad just to read something so I could distract myself. I'm like happy feet. Look there. I'm like fear of missing out is huge. And uh, so I was reading my iPad. And the first thing I read as I opened the book that I was reading before, the first lines I read was, if God did not spare his own son, whom he loved and whom he was well pleased with from the wilderness, why in the world do you think he would spare you from it? What makes you so special? I'll be honest with you, that information went, yeah, well, that's not, I'm used to, I still don't have evidence. <laughs> but I'd forgotten Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. And Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 said this, and you shall remember the Lord your God who carried you through the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. I was about to get a whole lot of cup of what was in my heart and humbling. I'd completely forgotten about that scripture. And I'd completely forgotten that 20 years before, when I just started out my journey with God, and I said to him, Lord, what are you going to do with my life? I'll never forget it one night. My mom had sent me a booklet about praying, a really simple booklet. God's the judge, you the attorney, present your case, see what happens. I did just that. And before I could finish my sentence, I felt this clear impression in my heart. And at that point, I was 19, 20 years old. So I had no, I mean, I'd gone to church, but I didn't really understand theology or anything like that or, or depth of understanding scripture, whatever. But when God wants to speak to you, speak to you. And this is what he said to me. He said to me, like the Israelites of old, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to take you to the promised land. I couldn't sleep that night. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm still bouncing my bed. The one who made me spoke to me. How exciting is that? But I'd, this is now 20 years later. I'm into my life. I'd forgotten about this. A friend of ours called us and said, hey, there's a, a guy who's a very renowned prophetic minister and, and he's pastor. They're from a big church in Atlanta, Georgia. They're in LA this week and they were willing to put time aside for some people in the industry to come and have a private meeting at our house. So we'd great, we'll go. I mean, if this guy's worth his salt, he, he'll tell us, you know, God's got all your tears in a jar. Sorry, he'll give them back to you, <laughs> fix everything, you know? That was the expectation. He prophesied over a couple of people, and it was, it was uncanny how accurate it was. Um, like, really uncanny how accurate it was, and we knew, okay, this guy's not to be messed with. And then he turned to us and said, hey, this young couple here, you guys married? Yep. He says, great, um, the Lord's showing me that you've been through really tough times. I'm like, yep. 
and then he said, but there's a wall between the two of you and your marriage. Oh? And then he said, um, and that's part of the foundation of your life. And if that's broken, God can't take you to where he wants to take you. Because you're standing on the brink of a breakthrough in your life to a different level of life that you need to live and calling on God. And it's a dangerous place. Remember, breakthrough doesn't always mean a million rand in the bank. <laughs> breakthrough can mean the cross. <laughs> and it's a dangerous place. Because it's the place where you die so that others can live. But he was about to take us. But if this marriage thing isn't working, and then he, and he continued and he said, part of the issue is you, you, you're a guy that likes bullet points. If you ask a question, you offer the answer before that person has time to think. And so I see this scenario plays himself out. Your wife is talking and you're constantly interrupting her. And you've damaged her heart. There's a kettle boiling in the background and I can hear my wife sniffing next to me as she's weeping, tears just dropping into her lap. And I realized after 15 years of marriage, I'd, not, I'd, n- I'd never even seen this. I wasn't even, a, I mean, I was guilty of it, 100%, but I wasn't even flipping aware of it. And in a moment, I realized there was wisdom God was only going to dispense to her to give to me. And if I didn't listen, I'd be missing out. And I did. Treasure chest after treasure chest of wisdom. Little things, big things, medium things, the whole caboodle. And I don't mean listen by keeping quiet. I mean stop having the conversation in your head while they're talking to you. Stop having the answers pop up the whole time while they're talking to you. And then he continued and he said, and you, look, pointing at me again, he said, God's opened doors for you before. Just so you know, for those who don't know my career, I had like a 20-year run of success. I'd done almost 30 commercials, over 1,000 episodes of TV, movies. I mean, this acting thing was wonderful and easy. And then he said, but the door started to shut, and the Lord wants you to know that he allowed them to shut because your heart is not surrendered and you've not been willing to pay the price. Just so you know, I was with the best agents in the world. I'd auditioned for Superman, got a callback to play the role of Superman, all that sort of thing. All the biggest auditions in LA, and I can't go into how impossible that is for me to have gotten from South Africa to that position. It was a miracle that God put me with this big agent. I drove over 11,000 kilometers, and I know that for my tax return because I had to fill it out. Not a single job. 20-year run of success, not a single job. And now now I know what I'm doing, and I have the best agents. Sometimes God communicates to us (laughs) when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches and without me you can do nothing. He really means it. It's it's not a nice story or a suggestion or a cool picture or a piece of art. No, it's like actually the truth. And you can have the best agents in the world and all that determination in the world. But if you're no longer part of that, that vine, get cut off, get thrown in the fire. And then he continued and he said, but if you will submit to God's process, then between 2012 and 2014, he'll restore your voice and that'll elevate you back up. Remember, God's not just a God of judgment. He's also a God of grace. He's not just the God of judgment. He's a God of love. And then he said to me, this is not a word of condemnation for you because in Christ, there is no such thing as condemnation. But it is a word of rebuke and a word of warning. And it's up to you, buddy. Do you want it? You can have it. If you don't, don't. For the next three weeks, 
I was in a complete funk because I was just trying to do self-fixing. That's the first thing we do. I know what's wrong with me, so I'm going to fix that. But I'm hiding the very thing that is wrong with me with all my heart because if God had to really touch that, then I'll change. And, and I'm not so sure I'm ready to do that. But in the meantime, Lee and I have a conversation and we realize that the reason there's a wall between us is because we went through some really, really tough times. And what happens is when you go through tough times and your heart's hurting, you close it up and you go, no more love out means no more hurt in, but you lose the intimacy. And like Jason and I were talking earlier, the problem is every day, whether you're married or not, life will present you with a brick. You can either pray through it, counsel through it, call your friends through it, whatever you need to do to toss that brick. Because if you don't, it'll build. There is no neutral ground. There is no truce. Stop the bricks. No wall. No. Every day brings bricks. And if you don't engage, a wall gets built. And you lose relationships. You lose community. You cannot pretend that it's not happening. I mean, you can, but to your own detriment. And so we said from that day onwards, we said, dude, if there's a brick and do debt, if there's a brick, we're going to deal with it. And we're not going to let that brick hang around long enough. And it's not easy. Because sometimes you want the brick, <laughs> want some space, <laughs> you know. But you've got to deal with it. So for the next three weeks, I was in self-fixing mode and, and I wasn't sure how to get out of this thing. Because the thing is, I knew it was true what this guy said but I didn't know how it was true. And that's the issue for most of us. We, we, we know stuff is true about ourselves, but we don't know how it's true, so then we just ignore it. And again, it was one o'clock in the morning. Lee and I were on a, like a literally a one-day a one holiday. That's all we could afford at the time. So we booked a cheap hotel and went away for one night in Santa Barbara. It sounds very glamorous, but it was, you know, just up the road from where we were living. And one o'clock in the morning, my stomach's in a knot. I'm like, Jesus, I don't know what's going on here help. And then I remembered a book somebody had told me about, and the book's name is Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. I don't know if anyone's heard of that book or read that book, but that book is about the idolatry of our hearts. It's about the things we look to more than we look to God to give us what only God can give us, things like security, value, worth, and meaning in life. And as I started reading the book, I felt like the Lord speak to me and say to me, this is the answer to the questions you have about how it's true. So the first question to see whether you are affected by this, which I can give you the cheat notes you are. So here we go. Is there anything in your life that's more important than God? And I said, no. No, I go to church. I've been this 20-year Christian. Okay, great. Well done. Is there anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? No, listen to too much worship music. Is there anything you look to to give you what only God can give you? Now, I misunderstood that question because I thought I looked to God for my provision and for everything else. But what the question was really asking was, is there anything in your life that you look to to give you value, worth, security, status, that gives you so much meaning that, like, if I have this thing, then everything's cool? I went, no, there's nothing like that. Oh, okay. Is there anything in your life that is so central and essential that you can spend all your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Now, I had no money left. I still said no. God's like, what? You didn't think twice about this, bro. You've blown your money and other people's money. 
And you're saying, no, okay. Final question is the one that really caught me out because it was, it was really hitting home. Is there anything in your life that should you lose it, your life would not feel like it's worth living anymore? Oops. Anything. I mean, kids, I mean, jobs, money, houses, whatever gives you status and security in life. If that thing's gone, will your life still be worth living? Because the only one that you cannot afford to lose is that vine, Jesus. Everything else is replaceable and redoable, whatever. That's a very hard truth. But you know, as I read that sentence, I realized that all the things I'd mentioned to God as evidence that he wasn't in my life, he was now throwing back at me and saying, that's the evidence I have that I'm not in your life. All of a sudden, I realized how many times did I not stand in church with my hands in the air, my tears flowing over my cheeks, Jesus, help me worship my idol better. I was soliciting God to help me worship that which gave me real meaning and value. Imagine Lee came to me and said to me, babe, I've met this guy and I want to use all of your money, all your friendships, all your networks and stuff to help me and our house and the car and everything to help me have an affair with him because then my life will have meaning, value and purpose. I says, girl. But if you think that's far-fetched, do you know that there's an entire book in the Bible, Hosea, where God explains exactly that? He says, this is how you make me feel every day. <laughs> it's not a joke, you know what I mean? And I'll tell you something, I was, uh, I was pretty shocked when, uh, when God flipped the camera of the movie of my life and started showing me the picture from his perspective. I had a lot of repenting to do. A lot of repenting. How much time I got left? About 12. Okay. I'll give you one simple little example. I was in a bank in Pasadena in 2010. Now, this is, these are the things that are starting to come back to me as, I, as I'm busy reading this book. A bank in Pasadena, it's, it's a suburb of LA or like a city just north of LA where Lee and I were living. And I was having a miserable day. One of those steam come out of your ear days. Nobody's nice. You're not nice. No one, the world's a rubbish place. Um, my dad had just been diagnosed with cancer. My movie hadn't come out that I was hoping to put me on the map. And, and also the wonderful job I had of that day was to go to the bank to get quarters, which is like, like two rand coins, so that we could do laundry. Yay, lovely life. So I walk in the bank. There's this excitable um, teller that sees me. There's about five of them. It's the city bank. I remember on the main street in, in Pasadena. And he's like looking at me like, I'm like, dude, what the pull my cap over my eyes. The other miserable bank tellers, I'm like, I want one of them because they feel like me. I get to the front of the line. Of course, everybody else is busy except Mr. Happy. <laughs> so I walk up to Mr. Happy and I flip into American accent because I'm like, dude, I'm not going to talk to you with my regular accent because if I do, then you're going to go, hey, where are you from? That's such a cute accent. I'm like, and I don't want that. <laughs> I just want the money. $20 worth of quarters, please. The guy's like, hey, man, how you doing? I'm like, I'm doing fine. How was your weekend? I'm like, mm. And God has a way of outing us, you know what I mean? And I stupidly said, oh, we had some friends from South Africa. And he's like, South Africa, I knew it, you that guy. I'm like, what? What guy? He said, the guy from the potato movie, man. 
I'm like, for faith like potatoes? He's like, yes, what are you doing in Pasadena, man? I can't believe it. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, God. Are you, are you mocking me? Like, is, this is like, are you reminding me of past successes? And, I, and in my heart, I'm thinking like, this movie did a lot for Angus, but it's done stuff all for me. Like, and I'm looking at this oak and I'm thinking, I wanna shut this thing down. I'm like, so where did you see this uh, movie? And he's like, at my church, man. So many people got touched and people made right with God and got saved. And my pastor's so excited. He's gonna, we're going to do another event with your movie, man. I can't believe you're Pasadena. <laughs> I'm like, thank you for the money, buddy. Have a great day. I'll see you later. And I walk out that building and I'm like, God, I want a job and I want money. I don't want to be reminded of this. You know, as I'm reading this book, I realize, hmm, the difference between me and Jesus in the wilderness was, you know, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word comes in the mouth of God. I mean, my rocks didn't turn to bread, so I ate them and broke my teeth. And then I got desperate and Jesus goes, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I'm like, I'll take chances. I'm going to jump off these buildings. God will catch me. God's gracious and kind. I didn't, I didn't die, but I broke legs. And then I got really desperate and I said, who the hell do I need to worship? And you had to get what I want. And Jesus goes, you shall worship the Lord your God only. And in one moment, it hits me so hard that there really is like two commandments in the Bible. If you keep those, you generally keep the rest. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbors yourself. And I broke both of them in one moment. I didn't give a stuff about those people that got touched by this movie and the millions of others in that moment. I was just concerned about my career. And in that moment, I just broke the, the first one, which was my career was my God. And I was soliciting God to help me worship my career. Humble you and show you what's in your heart. (laughs) It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. So what happened to me? Well, the only door that opened for me was to become a cab driver. Minimum wage job. Two days after my 40th birthday, I sit behind the wheel of a cab. My chest closes up and I'm going, God, how did this happen? How did someone who grew up privileged, my father was a doctor, so we had what we needed, in every way you can imagine, and then some. Had a university degree, had owned shares, owned homes, owned cars, owned, you know, thousands of TV episodes that I was in, and how did this happen? How did, how did my life get to this point where the value is a minimum wage job? And I remember a friend of mine who'd really been kind to me, he's a singer, and his CD was in the car, and as I turned the car, and the CD started playing, and, and the song they played was Tall Angels. And um, the chorus is, breathe, baby, breathe. Tall angels surround you. Everything's going to be okay. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, you know, your status used to be in that of being an actor. And I know you don't want to have the status of a cab driver, but that's so cool because now your status can be in me. (laughs) And you're a humble servant. No matter whether you make movies or whether you do a minimum wage job, it doesn't make a difference. You're a humble servant. That's the highest status you'll ever have. So get over yourself and love this city. You came to take from this city. I want you to give to this city. Come and serve the city. Come put on on the Jesus feet. (laughs) Walk in my shoes for a bit. I also didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Like, which part of Christianity didn't you understand? Which part of a man hanging on a cross and giving his life did not make sense to you? Which part of your life for my life, my life for your life? Losing your life for my sake didn't make sense to you. There's this bun. 
take part of it. And this is where the story comes to the fullness, the, the I don't want a broken story, because you know, here's the deal. God sent us his bread of life, broken for us. And if you would partake of him, he would nourish you in ways that you can't even imagine. But instead, we stand in our rooms and we scream, I don't want it broken. And Jesus was saying, this cab job is like broken bread. I'm telling you now, embrace it. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you're three years old and you're looking at this bun and you think it's rubbish because it's broken. Trust me, it's the best thing you've ever eaten. And between 2012 and 2014, I was a cab driver. And I'd met someone in my cab somewhere in 2014. A South African guy lives in Australia and he arranged for me to go and speak in Australia, New Zealand with Compassion and World Vision. And I did a tour of about 60 different venues, churches, businesses, schools, the whole nine. And I shared some of this story with those people. And it was an incredible tour. That's while I was still a cab driver. It was, in the, it was November of 2014. And I got home and in about November 20, uh, December 2014, I realized, oh my word, God gave me a voice. In the last place on earth, I thought, that, that, that little broken bun called the prison of my cab, that's where he gave me a voice. I had hours and hours to listen to sermons and the Bible and everything else to get re-educated because my theology did not have space for suffering. My theology had only place for prosperity and for glazed buns, unhealthy ones that make your stomach sick. It did not have space for suffering. And Paul says, you suffer, you persevere, character is formed. And character gives you hope and hope doesn't put you to shame. What is shame? It's the fear of not being good enough. I had lived with a paralyzing fear in my heart that I'm not good enough. No wonder I chased all those idols because they would make me feel like I'm good enough. But here's the problem with idolatry. It's never enough. It's never enough. And until you're in the grave, until it's killed you, will you not have that revelation that it wasn't enough. If beauty is your deal, trust me, you're always going to feel ugly. If money is your deal, You'll always feel like you're paying your employees too much and you're charging your customers too little. And you're going to think it's business acumen. No, sir, <laughs> or lady. That's called ruthless business practice. You're ripping people off. You're not bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because if you look at the Old Testament laws of gleaning, the poor were allowed to go to a rich man's field and glean off the edges. They could work for the excess Whereas in our society, the way we set up the economy is not only do we not allow people to glean, we set it up in such a way so that we make excessive profits. But that's what happens when we worship money. Then when I was, once I was done with my cab driving, I thought this is going to be awesome. You know, now that I've got a voice, I'm like, Jesus, you can open the doors and it's just going to be pumping. And then the only door that opened for me at the beginning of 2015 is I became the janitor at our church. My wife laughed because I've never really been a handyman and now my job was to be a handyman of a 22 and a half thousand square foot building. Do you know how many YouTube videos I watched on how to fix drywall, how to screw things in? And, and it, was, it, was, it was great and it was very tough because it's the complete opposite of my personality. I'm not a maintenance guy, I'm an adventurer. New adventures. And eventually, it was about August of 2016 after almost two years of working there, and almost five years of being in like a wildernessy kind of place, 
I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Ben, and I said to him, dude, I feel like I'm in the death zone. I don't know if you guys know the death zone. It's on Everest above 26 and a half thousand feet. It's where the last camp is that you can camp. And then the next day you get up and you hit the top of that thing, you summit and you come back down. And the reason why they call that the death zone is because you're busy dying. You cannot live there. The minute you go into that zone, there's too little oxygen to sustain life. So you dying, 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 touch the top, mom, take, come, 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 come. Okay, I'm not dead. <sighs> Enough oxygen, I'm back. That's, that's why they call it the death zone. That's where everybody dies. Over 200 people, I think, has died in that death zone. And I said to Ben, I said, I feel like I'm in the death zone. I don't know what's going on. And he said to me, mate, I think maybe God's kicking out the nest. I went to home that night. Just before midnight, I prayed. I said, God, help. Then I fell asleep. And I'll never forget, at six minutes past 3 a.m. on August the 3rd, 2016, I woke up. And it was the polar opposite of that cold November night. Where I there had a panic attack and a nightmare. Here, I felt like I was floating. I was like, don't touch me, don't move me. This is the most peaceful presence I've ever felt. I'm just feeling complete chill. And then I kind of felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to read my reading of the day, which is Psalm 88. I read this little book called The Songs of Jesus. It's based on the Psalms. And uh, I think we have the scriptures up, right? Of Psalm 88. If you don't, it's no worries. I'll just grab it on my phone. You got it. Okay. So it starts out with, Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. And just give me the next section. I think it's verse 10 and 11. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Basically what the psalmist is saying, when I'm dead, what good am I to you? Can I testify of your hope? And then the final section is um, verses 16 and 18. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's how the psalm ends. Now the commentator says, why would God leave that psalm on a completely hopeless note? Knowing that for thousands of years, people are going to read it. I mean, it's not great PR for encouragement, right? Here's why. Times of spiritual darkness can last a long time. That's just the truth. I've got no sugar or candy to put around it. That's just the reality, but it's okay. Secondly, when you're in a time of spiritual darkness, do not leave your despair at the door. Bring it to God. Cry out to God. Wail if you need to. In fact, get mad at Him like I did. I don't think God was offended by my getting mad at Him and falsely accusing me of stuff. I think He was going, great, now you're in the game. Now I can be honest with you. So don't leave it at the door. Don't leave your community. Don't isolate yourself. Indifference is what will kill you. Thirdly, your prayers are way more effective than you can possibly imagine. Even help. And finally, we see in the book of Job 1 verse 9, Job is willing to serve God for nothing. Because remember what Satan's accusation was against Job? He's only in it for what he can get. He's not in it for you. And God is okay. 
Let's test it. The minute Job is willing to serve God for nothing, Satan's accusation becomes untrue and he's defeated. And in that moment, I felt the Lord speak to me and say, you know what, this is what the last five years have been about. You're willing to serve me for nothing. Because you know, when you accused me of not having evidence that I was in your life, I had to judge you. But man, can you rejoice? Because my son stood up and said, Dad, I paid. I'll advocate for him. When you get out of jail like that, oh my word. I was cut to the heart because the cost, what it cost him to set me free was incomprehensible. The only way I could possibly sort of kind of relate to it a little bit was in those five years. It wasn't easy. But you know, I realized that not on my best day in those five years was I faithful to the Lord like 100% kind of thing. I realized Jesus carried me right through it all. Not only did he pay the price, he made it possible for me to get through it. When I was discouraged, who's the one that encouraged me? When I was confused about life, who's the one that spoke truth to my heart? When I wanted to give up, who's the one that said, this is the reason why you don't give up? Unless the vine is the vine in your life, you will die. Amen. Thank you for listening. Do you mind if I pray for you? Um, I just want to add to your prayer that you prayed earlier. Lord, if you want to just put your hand out and just say, Lord, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to show me, let's open our hearts to him. Father, you are so gracious and kind. Your word says the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's rich in love. And the Lord is good to all and he has compassion on all that he has made. Lord, there's not a person in this room that doesn't qualify for your salvation. Everybody qualifies. Every heart, every person, no matter who they are, where they've come from, what they've done, they all qualify for your salvation, your saving grace. Father, I pray that on the one hand, you will judge the sin in our hearts. But on the other hand, Lord, I pray that you will, you will gird us with your love, that we can make it through. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that because you love us, you can be truthful with us. Because you've provided salvation, you can judge the sin in our hearts and remove it. And I pray for redemption, Lord Jesus, because redemption is not scrapping that which is there and starting over again as if that which is there is a problem. No, it's setting at liberty that which became enslaved. Lord Jesus, set at liberty our hearts, our hearts that have become enslaved to things other than you things that don't love us, things that can only give us death and bring your life in Jesus' name. Amen.